I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ines Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home of national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. As usual, we have a great show in store for everybody today. We're actually going to break down, Josh is going to help us break down, the framework of the gun control bill that is said to have bipartisan support, um, and that is making its way through Congress right now. I'm then going to talk about the attempted assassination of Justice Kavanaugh and the media sort of just batting an eye um, and going on like it was business as usual. And as is going to talk about the recall of Chesa Boudin and whether San Francisco has perhaps had enough of their progressive experiment. And then Ben is going to talk to us about the Hawley and Grassy findings on the DHS abuses of power, the evidence of DHS abuses of power, which has also not gotten a ton of play in the media, as you might expect. So with that, we'll kick it over to Josh. Okay, well, thank you, Emily. And I think all of us are wishing Emily a quick and speedy convalescence from her current bout with COVID. <laughs> with COVID. So we're all, you're, you're a real trooper for being on this podcast, but um, we wish Thanks, you a spe- spe- speedy recovery. So the Senate, or at least a group of 20 senators, 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans has unveiled a bipartisan piece of so-called compromise legislation as it pertains to firearms in America. So this obviously has been a topic for weeks now in the aftermath of recent mass shootings. I think particularly the Senate really kind of got this working group in order in the aftermath of the Buffalo, New York shooting from a white supremacist and then the shooting, of course, in Uvalde, Texas of the elementary school, which we covered at great length on this podcast. So a lot of us, I think we're waiting, not particularly optimistically, but trying to be with an open mind to see what would happen with this group of 20 senators. It's probably worth pointing out right at the outset that if you look at the 10 Republicans who joined this working group, it's basically the usual kind of squish caucus, not the Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins types, John Cornyn of Texas, and then a bunch of Republicans who are actually retiring this fall. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, I don't want to go too far afield here, but, uh, you know, if you're if you've been paying attention to American politics for a while, and I say this as a former Texan who kind of, in many ways, kind of came of kind of right-wing activist age through Texas circles, John Cornyn is not exactly viewed with uh, the finest eye. I think it, it would be a very polite and, and modern way of saying it. But shifting over to the substance of what this group of 20 senators has proposed now, I, I'm just going to kind of run through some of the provisions that are included in this gun compromise. So the, probably the most major provision that we're going to talk about this most, I would I would imagine, are boosting red flag laws. So it's not necessarily federally mandating nationwide red flag laws, but it is incentivizing states monetarily to help them implement so-called red flag laws. We'll come back to that. Uh, there's, there's a provision for mental health and telehealth investment. There's a closing of the so-called boyfriend loophole. It's kind of a, a, a quick tangential aside here. It's kind of amusing to me how a lot of gun grabbing types find all these newfound loopholes. There's a boyfriend loophole, a gun control loophole. I'm not really sure what loopholes are going to come next. There's an enhanced review process for under 21 years old buyers, at least as it pertains to some specific types of firearms, like so-called AR-15s. So again, we're kind of getting into kind of the amorphous categorization of certain types of rifles and weapons that are not easy to define. They're trying to clarify the definition of who FFLs are, federally licensed firearm dealers, and then they're bolstering some resources for school security measures. 
So look, this is a hodgepodge of topics here. I think the first thing that if we're being intellectually honest that we could say here is that this could have been worse, okay? I mean, they could have put in like an assault weapons ban. They could have actually just raised the purchasing age for semi-automatic rifles to 21. They could have truly implemented so-called universal background checks and illegalized like a transfer of like grandma to grandson of like grandpappy shotgun. They could have like done all that stuff. They didn't. So if we're being intellectually honest, I think, I think it's first worth getting that out there. If we're being intellectually honest as well, I think it's worth saying that there are some provisions in here that everyone like sh should support. So, you know, more funding for school security, certainly something that I've called for for many years as a, you know, as a son of an elementary school teacher, this kind of hits home a little bit for me. Um, you know, increase investment in mental health, certainly something that I think should garner across the, the spectrum bipartisan unanimous support. But there's two, there is, from my perspective, there is far too much in here. There is far too much in here that caves. And basically, when you have people like Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook school shooting uh, almost a decade ago now kind of emerged, I think is kind of the face of the Democratic Party's kind of gun grabbing agenda. When you have someone like him as enthusiastic, as, as ebullient I, I, about a gun bill like this, there's probably a rebuttable presumption in lawyers speak that there is something wrong here. And I think what's wrong here is that there is just too much bad stuff. And the red flag provision in particular, I think single-handedly probably should cause conservatives to the extent that they can over that they can mount a filibuster because there are 10 Republicans. So we'll see how that Senate broke. So how that Senate vote breaks down that that would be kind of Rachel's specialty if she were here. But if they can, if they can come to enough senators to defeat this, I think the red flag provision probably in and of itself is reason to do so. Emily, in kind of her pre-COVID era, I think very helpfully broke down for us why these red flag provisions should be so troublesome for conservatives. The basic argument here, I think this is totally right. I've seen Blake Masters make this point. I've seen Eric Erickson, a bunch of other men's point. The, the basic idea here is that they view so much of what we are saying, including on this very podcast, as you know, racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobic, hate speech that could easily get you in front of some liberal Obama-nominated, Biden-nominated judge and get your guns taken away. And the last thing I'll say on this real quick, I, I, Tucker Carlson was monologuing about this earlier this week, and he had a tweet from Eric Swalwell in 2019, and Eric Swalwell was calling for the use of red flag logs to take away Ben Shapiro's guns for a, a fairly anodyne rant that he went on on his podcast. So we literally have like outspoken gun-grabbing Democrats in Congress talking about the manipulation and the political weaponization, I should say, of red flag logs to strip us. So I would personally prefer the bill be killed on that exact note, but there's a lot to break down here, so I'll kind of just throw it open on that. Sure, I'll, I'll pick up. Um, totally, completely agree with Josh about um, the red flag laws, and and I think as Emily has said in the past, it is an indication that we live in a, a low trust society. Because actually, I think if you got you know ten Americans into a room uh, and and gave the list of, of sort of um, I guess I'll use the word red flags, right? For a lot of these shooters cutting on their own faces, you know, making real threats um, in, in a previous school shooter's case, uh, you know, bringing bullets to school. Um, so I, I think that there are probably, if you got 10 ordinary Americans into, into a room, they could agree on a set of characteristics that actually like these people seem really, really disturbed and they shouldn't be able to buy guns. Um, the problem is that the institutions are so corrupted that 
nobody and and they're right not to nobody on the right is going to trust the same institutions that labeled you know parents domestic terrorists for being concerned about crt uh to determine who it falls in that very tiny category and then to, to go ahead and strip second amendment rights from people um on a selective basis and i think that conservatives are rightly very um mistrustful of, of uh, the institutions that would go ahead and do anything like that um the the other thing though that i, I guess i may be uh, a little bit disagree with Josh on is um, two buckets like mental health uh, funding and then funding for school security. And I disagree with these for two different reasons, right? Um, mental health oftentimes uh, is just going to folks, uh, you know, frankly, like school counselors um, to focus on issues like anxiety and depression. And, and we have this weird dichotomy in our, our mental health sort of support system, which everybody decries. And that's because the large majority of the funding is continually going to what I would call sort of upper middle class um, uh, ailments uh, um, that that may or may not benefit from that funding. I, I tend to think they don't even benefit from that funding. But at the same time, we have absolutely no structures in place to deal with people who are legitimately out of touch with reality or threats to themselves or others because we are reluctant to hinder their liberty in any way, right? Um, so I, I'm not sure that more money into the mental health system is actually going to be helpful. And similarly, so, look, our schools are not underfunded. They have plenty of money to implement security. In fact, when I was working with state legislators, um, even uh, you know five years ago, seven years ago, uh, there were uh, a bunch of firms who were willing to do this basically at cost for extremely minimal amounts of money. When we're talking about hardening schools, there's a lot of things that are really easy, right? Doors that only open one way, for example. Um, there were firms willing to do this at cost after past um, past school shootings. And so it's, it's not really a, a financial problem. It's not that I'm against uh, taking some of these measures. It's just that, you know, we have, we have the money already in the system to, to take them and they haven't been taken. And, and it's a very intentional decision and a very intentional prioritization of the education system not to prioritize these kinds of things. Now, maybe we can attach some very specific strings to that money and maybe it can work out. I'm just kind of throwing that skepticism out into the, out into the chat for, um, for, for, uh, I guess, rebuttal. Um, so I'm, I'm not against the goal, but I'm just very deeply skeptical that the system can get it done. And, and then finally, you know, the age restrictions, you know, the left on age seems to be all over the age of majority, right? You, you, if you are, um, if, if you are eight months uh, uh, in the womb, then you don't have any rights. But if you, um, it, when you're 13, you're a full adult for the purposes of taking uh, hormones and, and acquiescing to life-changing surgery. Uh, but when you're 26, you're still on your parents' health insurance, uh, right? So uh, it, it really seems like uh, the age of majority is something that, and again, a high trust normal society would be able to agree upon and say, okay, children, separating children from adults. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to continue this facade. Like if you're an adult, you should be able to buy a gun. Um, if you're not an adult, you know, you shouldn't. Uh, and, and I'm sort of reluctant to continue that facade, but yeah, I could get out to everybody else too. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Josh and Inez touched on um, a lot of the important stuff and the specifics of this framework. Basically, if we're funneling uh, laws via grant or, or we're funding money by, via grant to 
uh, fund red flag laws. Um, there's a very big difference between what happens in California and what happens in uh, Tennessee. And that is a very meaningful difference. Um, if we are funding anti-constitutional red flag laws that harm law-abiding people with their who are just accessing their rights responsibly, that's a problem. Um, and the Buffalo example is a really good one. There's a red flag law in New York. This guy had been committed a year before for planning a school shooting. He was posting on a private server on Discord. Um, nobody was monitoring his social media. He bought a gun. Uvalde, as soon as he turns 18, he buys a gun. He's been, I mean, it's just, Uvalde also had all of the funding for school safety. It had all of that. Um, and, and so I think, you know, there's obviously much deeper problems. I understand the catharsis of federal funding and of a bill, a legislative package. Um, I understand how that can feel cathartic for society. I'm not sure that these are, are problems of funding. Um, and that's the sad reality of mass shootings. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're problems uh, that are, are much deeper than legislation can address. And we should do everything legislatively we can to address problems that do exist. Doors, for instance, that is a really concrete, good one. Um, what happened with the Uvalde door, we still don't know. Uh, so we can fund all of these things. We can do absolutely everything possible, but evil finds a way. And we are in a society that is producing more and more evil. So I'll toss it over to Ben with that. Just really briefly, to totally agree. You can't legislate your way out of every problem. The the framework that I would always look at in terms of evaluating these uh, purported gun proposals that are supposed to serve as panaceas is ex post. In what instances would these various laws actually have prevented the tragedies that we're talking about here? And last point I'll make is even if you had the most pristine laws on the books and they passed constitutional muster, you still have the issues that have been raised here of, okay, the, those who are going to draft the red, red flag laws at the state levels, why do you trust that they won't use them to uh, basically punish their political foes if we are the domestic violent extremists definitionally by being conservatives in this country? Then you have the mental health professionals and institutions. Do you trust them to actually uh, help people work through their problems and where needed institutionalize these individuals, especially when the institutions uh, have basically been destroyed in this country uh, to prevent them from going out and committing crimes, horrible crimes. And then lastly, as we saw in Uvalde and elsewhere, the security personnel themselves, they fail oftentimes in all of these instances. So the, the last point I'll make is just when it comes to the spectrum between hardening and therefore deterring crazed individuals versus stripping people of their rights, we should always err towards the side of deterrence and it's amazing to me that corporate headquarters so often are hardened to a substantially greater degree than schools. There's nothing more important than protecting kids in this country. We should work towards the hardening and the deterrence factor here. Yeah, super quick, and then we'll toss it to Emily. So I think Inez's point on mental health is actually very well taken. I mean, in, in theory, I, if it were possible to target more funding in a way that would be effective, I, that's a massive caveat, obviously. There's nothing ideologically that should lead us to oppose that. But your point is very well taken. A lot of this is going to get kind of clogged up through all these bureaucratic back channels that are that are probably, quite frankly, hostile to our interests. But we are, we're way out of time in the segment. So let's toss it over to Emily for our next segment. No, it's no problem. I'll keep it uh, super brief on the intro just because I think most people are aware of what happened and the basics of the story um, are 
pretty basic, in fact. There was a would-be assassin, speaking of mental health problems in this country, a would-be assassin who was in some sort of mental crisis made his way uh, within about two blocks of Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home in Maryland. He saw the security guards um, and ended up kind of turning himself in through his sister, called the sister, then ended up um, saying, here, I'm here, I have a gun. He had all of these implements to get into the justice's home. It appeared like burglarizing implements, um, hammers and such. So basically he was he was trying to break into Justice Kavanaugh's home and, and kill him. He did turn himself in. He did do the right thing. I think part of his plan was also to commit suicide. Um, and this was on page A20 of the New York Times the next day. We play, can play this game every week with virtually every story. Um, if this had been an assassination attempt on uh, Justice Sotomayor's life from a conservative who was upset this decision was going to go in the other direction um, and the decision still hadn't been uh, rendered, we were still waiting for it and there had been a leak that was supposed to pressure people. I, I mean, it would be the only story that the news was talking about for days and days and days. There would be uh, legislative solutions proposed and everyone... Uh, would be a buzz about it. Instead, this ends up on page A20 of the New York Times. Only Fox News Sunday mentioned it. Um, of all of the Sunday shows, only Fox News Sunday mentioned it. None of the other ones mentioned it, um, according to Megyn Kelly. That's insane. Uh, so with that, I'll toss it open to the group. And just I, I, the way that I think it's helpful to think about this, there's two points to the story. One, what is its news value? And then two, um, is the media being hypocritical? So does it have actual news value? And then is the media being hypocritical? We know the answer to both those questions is yes. Um, but if you guys have any thoughts on breaking it down that way, go for it. Yeah, I mean, talk about a black pill. Uh, I mean, earlier this week when I put on Fox News, I guess I hadn't realized the extent to which there was a media blackout of this story until Fox had the graphic where they just showed. I mean, ABC, NBC, CBS, primetime news coverage, zero, New York Times, H20, like you said. I mean, look, we the, the reality is we came not that far away from the highest profile political assassination in America, probably since RFK, right, in the late 1960s and over 50 years. Thank God it, it didn't happen, obviously. But this, I mean, the man, if I'm not mistaken, was within two or three blocks of the justice's house before he ended up kind of at the last minute had cold feet and basically turned himself in. This story is just unbelievable. I mean, not just the media blackout, but talk about the fact that, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. Senate unanimously, I think literally all 100 senators voted to increase security for the justice in the aftermath of the Dobbs abortion leak last month, which, by the way, the fact that this was so eminently foreseeable was, to me, one of the obvious reasons from uh, from day one of uh, of this entire leak happening that this was going to be a leak from a liberal justice's chambers because it, 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 from the from the leaker's perspective, something like this happening a near assassination on Kavanaugh is a feature, not a bug, of of the act of of issuing that leak to Josh Gerstein at Politico. But this legislation passed the Senate unanimously last month. 100 senators, if I'm not mistaken, passed increased security for justices. It is still lingering in the U.S. House. Nancy Pelosi has not brought it to a vote. That, that is just gobsmacking to me. Thank God that the U.S. deputy marshals caught this lunatic on, on a tip from local people there. But um, it's just a very sad story uh, in, in many ways there. Thank God Justice Kavanaugh is all right. And you know, Dobbs has been a recurring theme in this podcast for many months now. So at this point, we just have to continue to pray that amidst just all this unprecedented, unchartered waters, just 
black pill, dark nonsense. They, they see this through and do the right thing, which I, I think they actually will. Um, yeah, I, I obviously the story is being sent to the same black hole as the congressional baseball shooting. Uh, and, and there's there's obviously a very, very strong and obvious bias. I mean, to the to the to the point where I almost wonder if uh, like like Pravda, you know, the American media, you're, you're learning more from what isn't written than what is. I mean, um, we often can tell from these shooting situations just by the coverage you know, what team the perpetrator played for, oftentimes what race they are by not having, the, by the fact that it's not mentioned if the person is either black or Hispanic and it is mentioned if they're white, right? Um, and that, that just is is the, the farcical level of, of the US media bias, which actually is far beyond um, what a lot of, you know, for example, European media or even like Canadian or, or UK media is, even though those those media establishments are mostly all left wing, they still have a sort of level of seriousness that would lead them to cover things like this, whereas the US media seems to be unique in the Western world for being completely and transparently and stupidly partisan. Um, the, the other aspect of this is, is I'm wondering what's happening with this um, investigation, right, into to who the leaker was. I think Josh, you know, brought this up to, to good effect, which is, you know, it's been a while and there aren't that many clerks, right? So there actually aren't that many suspects in this. I feel like uh, it's either incompetency or they know who it is and they're not they're not releasing it because um, there, there really aren't that many possible leakers for this opinion. So I would think that a competent investigator would be able um, would be able to, to get to the bottom of it. And, and thirdly, just to second Josh's point really quickly before um, kicking it over to Ben, um, obviously the intimidation of of judges. Um, not only, for example, is a crime already, uh, but but it is another indication that, um, that th there are no political oases, um, there are no those sort of uh, safe harbors, and there's no withdrawal from the capital P political battles that are going on. And obviously, we can still draw a very sharp line between um, politics, qua politics, and uh, actual intimidation and illegal uh, acts and uh, of violence, and that is a very sharp line. But I do think it's another indication that you know the Supreme Court cannot stay out of some of these political battles, which means they might as well rule on the law and stop being concerning themselves with it, which is not the province of a judge or ought not to be the province of a judge to begin with. Well, I have a number of different First is, uh, the silence is deafening. We're recording this, I believe, on the anniversary of the congressional baseball game shooting. And the fact that there is zero coverage of games here, it's so telling. We're also juxtaposing this plot to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh against the January 6th hearings, where we're told that violent insurrectionists threaten the entire United States of America. And interestingly, if you actually look into the that more than 800 people have been slapped with. There are several weapons charges that were doled out, but of them, I'm not sure that any individual had a firearm on them inside the Capitol, at least that we uh, now we can, I'll probably be fact on that, but I'm pretty certain that to date, no one has had a weapon on them besides maybe a DEA agent uh, who was charged that day. Uh, so it's kind of a remarkable juxtaposition here when you have potentially a vote that could be the deciding vote in this case, uh, the Dobbs case, and life being threatened and intimidated here, and of course sends a message to all the other judges as well. And so my question to the Chief Justice Roberts, you know, obviously for the media, the message that's being sent is leftist political violence is okay, but if, if the other side ever acts out in any 
a potentially violent way, we're going to cast the entire side as terrorists and use the full force of the security state, the federal government, and our private sector allies against them. But another question here that, that the Chief Justice ought to answer is, do you believe that you protected the institution by not rendering this opinion immediately after the leak came out? I believe the Chief Justice has to answer for that, and it's really maddening that he hasn't to date. So with that, we'll kick it over to you, Inez. Well, uh, so a bright spot, I guess, uh, in all this news is that we talked last week about um, the potential recall um, recall election of Chessie Boudin, who was the D was the DA in San Francisco. Um, he has been recalled in a 55 to 45 election. Um, it's important to recognize that only people who live in San Francisco could vote in this election. And I believe the current Republican registration rate in San Francisco is like 6.5% or something like that. It's under 7%. So um, obviously this is an indication that there are some limits even to the extremely progressive um, sort of left in San Francisco to what they're willing to tolerate in terms of complete street breakdown and crime. Um, just a couple couple uh, sort of things to note on this. Obviously, um, this is not like some some grand uh, sweeping victory for the right. The person who comes in is likely to be progressive as well. But I, I, I do think it's worth watching what happens with this issue. Um, I tend to suspect that um, the, the left will get a lot more quiet about both defund the police and with this kind of mass de, de, I can call it decarceration movement. Um, and, and actually, uh, I think there's some instructive dynamics within the San Francisco political scene where the two sides are functionally, as I told you, there's less than 7% Republicans, but two sides are functionally actually sort of uh, neoliberal techies versus um, more radical, well, in the past it had been more radical socialist slash woke folks. Um, my guess is that actually they doubled down on the kind of corporate woke left issues and then ignore something like um, de-incarceration or defund the police. So I think you'll you'll hear them actually get more noisy on, for example, trans issues or some of these other um, issues where corporations and tech pros can signal, virtue signal on and prove that, yes, they really are uh, on the left before quietly saying, but no, 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 please please don't allow um, the, the complete degeneration of San Francisco into an unlivable um, unlivable city. I mean, in some ways that's that's good, right? Like as, as the, the local urban pumper here, um, I, I definitely think that it's a good thing that um, something will be done about the free fall that San Francisco is in. Maybe it, it is an indicator for other cities, um, in, including LA that has a similar DA, um, San Francisco, I mean, sorry, uh, Manhattan has a similar DA. I, I think it would be good if, if the sort of neoliberal center of the Democratic Party pulled back uh, on this issue and they'll probably do it because it's gonna hurt them in the ballot box. I'm just happy that it's going to happen either way. Um, and finally, one more point before I kick it out to, to the team. Um, the, what lessons I think, uh, I think there are some lessons for the right or, or potential lessons to think through for the right on this election. This is, this is the perfect example of how radical leftism has moved into the institutional mainstream, right? So Chessie, his parents were, whether underground members, they were um, both incarcerated for the murder, uh, felony murder of, of a security guard, and I believe a police officer, um, it, dur during the course of a robbery that they were involved in, but they were whether underground members he largely has the same ideas and politics, but I think it's instructive to see what's happened. Those weather underground members are all 
teaching in universities. Um, and in this case, his parents, you know, taught him the, uh, the the values that led them to commit those crimes. But instead of going out and being a member of um, of a terrorist group that that you know commits bombings um, and murder, what he's done is, you know, he, he went to Yale Law School, became a DA, um, and changed the system from within. And and I, I think that's really, in a small way, the story of how all of these institutions have gone woke. You had these original '60s New Left radicals who realized actually they can affect things a lot more by taking over first the academy and then through their students and, and sort of intellectual progeny, um, all these other institutions, and they've been enormously successful in doing it. And that's not to say, I, I actually don't think we can copy that, that model exactly because we don't have 50 years, uh, but it is worth thinking about for the right. Well, and the right doesn't necessarily need to copy that model um, because it's at a certain point when you pass the threshold of sanity, as Chesa Boudin did, uh, the Democratic voters, Asian American voters in particular, uh, voted him out. They recalled three school board members last year, late last year. Um, and Chesa Boudin, th this was a, a decisive loss for him. And it came from mostly Democratic voters. It came from uh, particularly Asian American voters. And even the uh, Black mayor of San Francisco has pushed back on some of the Chesa Boudin uh, radicalism, which is just, it's all very interesting. And Nellie Bowles has a really good piece in The Atlantic on what happened with Chesa Boudin and sort of the, the arc of Chesa Boudin. And it's really interesting just going back to how um, the Trump era, how the left was acting in the, the first couple of years after Donald Trump was elected president. It was the fervor was really off the charts and it pushed them in some really crazy directions and um, they're not ever going to have to pay for it. Um, that's that's what I've been thinking recently. Like uh, my co-host over at Rising, Ryan Graham, has a really good piece in The Intercept about how um, the people like Taylor Lorenz and Felicia Sanmez at the Washington Post are making it impossible just to manage workplaces and businesses and, and not just at media outlets, but at you know, all kinds of different places, this is metastasized. And so I think, yeah, people are pushing back on it, thankfully, um, but there'll never be accountability for uh, the, the fundamental like moral relativism. And hopefully it, it pushes back on that. Hopefully we're all being, all of the bread baking uh, that took place in the early days of COVID um, it will be sustained. Uh, there, there'll be a sustainable sort of sense of uh, family and purpose that we come out of COVID with. I don't know, but it is at least good news that we're coming out of COVID uh, without Chesa Boudin. So I guess three things come to mind. First is just to emphasize he got whipped. I mean, this was a, a, a roughly 20 point loss. It was a 60, 40 recall. It was led a largely by San Francisco's large Asian community. But I mean, this was not just like an Asian specific thing. I mean, a 20 point margin is a big margin in a, in a, in a popular city. The second thing is, Inez touched on this. So I wrote my column on this last week, I guess. So I knew that he came from very far left stock, for lack of a better term. I didn't realize the extent to which he really came from left-wing royalty. So I just want to read a paragraph from my column this past week, if I can, it's about this topic. Quote, Boudin's parents were weather underground domestic terrorists and following the 1981 Brinks robbery in New York State convicted as cop killers. They were incarcerated. Boudin's father was just released last November. And Boudin was thus raised in Chicago's Hyde Park neighborhood by Bill Ayers. Yes, that Bill Ayers, the one-time weather underground leader, domestic terrorist kingpin, and erstwhile comrade of another famous Hyde Park denizen, Barack Obama. Boudin's great-granduncle, Louis Boudin, 
was an influential Marxist legal theorist and an active member of the Socialist Labor Party of America. Boudin's grandfather, Leonard Boudin, was a radical leftist attorney who once represented Fidel Castro's revolutionary Cuban government. Chesa Boudin himself worked before law school in Caracas as a translator and researcher for Venezuela's blessedly deceased socialist president, Hugo Chavez. Uh, I mean, you just want to vomit when like you read that, right? When you see that. Uh, first of all, I, not to go so ad hominem here, the guy's name is Chesa. I was ashamed to learn that this man is allegedly Jewish. Uh, I, I have never met a Jewish Chessa before. I have to think that his domestic terrorist parents were doing some some kind of like Black Panther, Black Power sort of thing there. I, I can only speculate, of course, but just wild, wild stuff. Um, and they really, I guess, he was so crazy that even San Francisco went too far. So you know, good for good for the people of San Francisco. The final thing, though, that I want to say, and the most the most substantive thing, is. I appreciate that a lot of people on the right are now kind of decrying the progressive prosecutor project, the Soros funded DAs all throughout the country, people like George Gascone in Los Angeles, Kimberly Fox in Chicago and Cook County, Illinois, Alvin Bragg in New York. But I, I have to say that, you know, as someone who has done a lot of these, these intro right squabbles on our side for years against the so-called criminal justice reform crowd from organizations like Cato Institute, Institute for Justice, R Street, it is great to see the the pendulum maybe start swinging, especially in the, in the two years since the 1619 riots after George Floyd in 2020. But we really have to make sure that we don't go back to the days where 88 United States senators signed the First Step Act into law in 2018, because the vast majority of the, of the Republican caucus signed on to that. I think a lot of Republicans to this day will talk about the merits of so-called criminal justice reform. What does criminal justice reform mean? Well, it obviously means a decarceral, white on crime, anti-sentencing agenda. So we on the right have to push for law and order. We have to stand for long, firm sentences when they're justified, obviously. And I think it's, in, it's incumbent upon self-described NatCon folks like ourselves to be at the forefront of that push. Uh, well, I guess I'd say... Um, Chester Boudin really does personify in many ways the way that the radical left evolved over time. But it's also worth noting that the likes of Bill Ayers and many others, once they uh, came out of jails themselves, uh, ended up becoming professors that they could then indoctrinate the future generations and get them to uh, drop the radical pose for the radical ends and suit up and enter into uh, the justice system, into government, into our big tech companies and everywhere else uh, and our most other ever, our other influential institutions. Um, all that said, you know, this is a, a positive story, if nothing else, because it shows that directionally uh, in cities across the country and even in San Francisco, there, it, there are limits to take in their own lives. When, they're actual, when their self-interest truly is threatened, self-interest like being able to walk down the street Noodles, needles strewn everywhere, uh, or have, or you know, getting your car jacked, or not being able to have any pharmacies around because they're getting pilfered every single day. That's that's a problem that everyone has to deal with, and you can't just pay your way out of it. The fact that this also does does appear to be largely Chinese immigrant driven, first generation Chinese immigrant driven, is interesting, and you know, one wonders if. Over time, if Republicans have half a brain to actually appeal to immigrants who don't like coming here and then dealing with worse maladies potentially than they had from whence they came uh, in the first place, uh, also worth noting. So, you know, there are positives to take from this. Um, but to Josh's point, you know, we, we also have to watch 
there's been a transition already in leftist rhetoric at minimum from defund the police or get rid of police altogether to reimagining police and rhetoric, you know, approximating something like just criminal justice reform. Um, and, you know, the left, the, the basic argument of the left is oftentimes that it's society's fault that these criminals are made. And then by putting people in prison, you end up creating generational strikes and perpetuate these problems. So it's again, society's fault. Uh, for putting people away who commit crimes. And, and we should not at all fall for those premises or accept those premises. We can disagree on what ought to be uh, what ought to be punished and to what extent, but we should never give in to those premises whatsoever. And the public itself is demanding law and order right now in spades. And we ought to lean in. We should have been leaning into it before. We certainly ought to be leaning into it now. Um, on that note, I once saw Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn enjoying a nice quiet dinner together uh, at a cafe here on Capitol Hill. It was uh, truly a lovely, peaceful sight to behold. Um, ben, take us almost segment four here. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm not sure how to, if this necessarily ties a bow on anything that we've discussed today, but uh, to our Brave New World DHS. Uh, Senators Hawley and Grassley have been pretty dogged on digging into the Disinformation Governance Board, DGB, which has been paused, but is by no means gone. Recall that the administration has put in a uh, former head of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, um, as well as a former Clinton official to balance out Republican and Democrat establishmentarians to oversee the board in this pause and as it's reviewed. But the administration itself has said that the work continues to combat mis, dis, and malinformation. And Hawley and Grassley have gotten some whistleblower information, the creation of the board, what drove it, what activities it was actually undertaking. And the story has gotten kind of overshadowed in the news cycle, but I think it is worth shining a light on because it proves a lot of things that we have been arguing here for months, really on this show. So contrary to the way that it was popularly portrayed, according to the investigation of Senators Hawley and Grassley, the DGB in its planning documents was not just focused on external mis, dis, and malinformation efforts. It was also focused on domestic ones. So in those, in those planning documents, one of the memos talks about the fact that also the DGB would look at, quote, conspiracy theories about the validity and security of elections and, quote, disinformation related to the origins and effects of COVID-19 vaccines or the efficacy of masks, unquote. And by the way, of course, because this is exactly what DHS was saying in its threat bulletins, including in February of this year, and now even in a more recent one, that these are the real threats, the real underlying ideas that are driving the gravest threats in this country. Wrong think on elections, wrong think on the coronavirus. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas, it appears, also misled the public when he talked about when the board was established, because it was established significantly before he cleansed the fact that it had been created in testimony, and also that it had been under control of disinformation Mary Poppins, Nina Jankowitz, for some time and had been engaged in meetings actively far before it was disclosed to the public that it was in existence. And last but not least, or second to last but not least, in documents found by the senators, it appears that DHS officials had appeared to prepare legislation to codify a, quote, rumor control program of the Department of Homeland Security to counter misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, including a public-facing website known as Rumor Control, basically creating a disinformation portal, it would appear, by law, 
which is akin to what's been done at state levels, by the way, in places like New Jersey and Connecticut, where they're disinformation czars, and they're asking people to essentially turn in wrong thinkers or wrong think to state security authorities. But the biggest revelation of all concerned these draft notes for a meeting that, the, that DHS officials, I believe, including DGB officials, were going to have with Twitter executives. And during in those notes, and we don't know if this meeting has happened, there are open questions out there to DHS on this, but in those notes, they talked about operationalizing a partnership with Twitter and the DGB, uh, a DHS strategy document theorized that, quote, by sharing information, DHS can empower partners like Twitter to mitigate threats. And this includes such as providing information to tech companies, enabling them to remove content at their discretion, of course, and consistent with their terms of service. And in the notes for this meeting, the DHS officials say it's an opportunity to discuss operationalizing this relationship. And the notes from that meeting said the DGB would propose to Twitter that it be an active participant in analytic exchanges with it on countering MDM, misdis and malinformation, related to domestic violent extremism and irregular migration. So to some extent, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that this document is a smoking gun because we've actually had smoking guns many times before of administration officials going out there and saying, we're talking to Twitter and other tech companies about policing speech we don't like on their platforms. We've already seen it. We've seen the Surgeon General talk about that with respect to COVID. I think we've seen the Energy Secretary now talking about that with respect to global warming wrong think. So expect that next inquisition uh, to unfold shortly. But I think the big point here is, and, and this is represented in these notes, that the deep state has sought to, at a minimum, deputize social media as the enforcement arm in its war on wrong think. And that's been executed at every level and in a variety of different ways from the bully pulpit to meeting is just like the ones that were contemplated here. And the last point I'll make on that, and I'm curious if you all agree, and you probably do, because we, it's, it's like a broken record here every single week with new revelations showing the ways in which our various influential institutions are conspiring against Americans who don't think like them and threaten their power, is that any legislation ultimately that's considered in terms of breaking up big tech, and of course, big tech and their deep state allies have opposed a lot of what's been put out there. So that's probably a feather in the cap of some of the reforms that have been bandied about. But we better make sure that in context of efforts to regulate or break up big tech, that there is not a codification of this First Amendment by proxy, where it's our legislators and our deep state working with these social media companies to suppress criticism of their rule. I think we ought to be very careful about that. Super quickly, I can just say, I, I somehow missed the uh, release from Grassley and Holly until yesterday. And when I looked at the document, it was chilling. I mean, it was like, I, I guess it shouldn't be at this point, but it was everything they said it wasn't um, outlined there clearly. Like those were clearly their intentions. And if there's a way to turn the story into a, a good one, it's that it, we're st we still live in a country where the pressure on them was enough to at least cancel this um, publicly. Who knows what they're going to be doing still in private because they're so intent on uh, monitoring people and so convinced that you know everybody who is not them is deplorable that needs to be monitored like a child by the government. Um, but it, the document that they have, it's like this is the framework for Orwell this is the 1984 framework like that is basically what's in the document they're outlining so with that i'll, I'll kick it to everybody else yeah i mean this uh, go ahead, go ahead no, 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 no 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 go ahead go ahead 
Um, I only have a real brief point to make, which is uh, th there is a cross the board problem with uh, private tyranny. Um, and it's something that we're going to have to like find structurally um, on the right some some way to deal with it. It might be different in different um, organizations, but this reminds me very, very much of, for example, the vaccine mandate where, you know, the, the, the way that it was drafted, um, it was unlikely to survive judicial review, but it didn't matter. Right, because the point was to communicate to companies, this is what you need to do. Another example, Michelle Obama, you know, said Facebook, why is like this disinformation still up? Well, then Facebook takes it down, right? Um, there, there is a real communication that goes out where the things that the Constitution rightly restrains our government from doing, they just put out in a statement or a non um non-binding you know sort of board resolution or whatever it is uh, and private companies pick it up run with it and because the first amendment for example doesn't apply to their actions then um you know that then uh they escape that kind of judicial review and those kinds of limitations and not just in in the case of censorship but in the case of a lot of other uh, key constitutional rights we're going to have to deal with the fact that what is being built is effectively a social credit system but it's a wholly privatized social credit system that only takes its cue from government. And, and just one final point on those cues, you know, you would think that if it takes its cues from government, right, that, that it would at least be subject to, you know, the elections and whoever is in, in government would be giving um, the cues and those cues would change. Largely, these are cues um, from a, an overwhelming federal bureaucracy uh, that is is completely left wing that donated, according to the FEC in 2016, donated 95% uh, to Democrats, right? So that is that is the apparatus that is communicating back and forth with these companies and evading, I think, key constitutional restraints and and on government. And just as a problem, this is this is the shape of the problem that is, uh, in my view, actually, and, and maybe somebody can correct me, in my view, it's, it's a totally new form of, of, of tyranny. Um, it makes it very different from, say, the, the CCP and the way that they conduct their, their social credit system or um, past, you know, sort of censorship in the Soviet Union. It, it's a, a new shape, uh, but it has largely the same, uh, same results. So we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. So Inez basically said what, exactly what I want to say. So I'll just very quickly uh, make an auxiliary point, which is, the way that I have phrased what we're witnessing now and the way I did so in kind of a heritage sponsored big tech debate that I did maybe a month and a half ago or so is I emphasize um, what I call the collapse of the purported public private distinction. It's becoming just a big blob. You know, I think in kind of a neoclassical economics and kind of laissez faire, we like, to, we like to think of this huge distinction between state power and private power, kind of like, you know, the true distillation of kind of classical liberalism would be kind of government uh, bad, private sector good. But time and time again, especially in the big tech uh, specific area, but not really just in that, also kind of in debanking and financial services, we have seen just this distinction go away. So I think back about a year ago when Jen Psaki standing from the White House podium was bragging about how she was working with Mark Zuckerberg to crack down on COVID misinformation. Literally earlier this week, I saw Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal tweet to a Wall Street Journal editorial, quote, White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy wants social media platforms to censor content on the cost of a force-fed green energy transition. So look, I, I, any benefit of the doubt that these tech companies have had for being purely private actors and not being kind of force-fed or commandeered from the state, I think is totally out the window at this point. And that is one of the many reasons why I think that we have to take appropriate policy action, be it antitrust, common carrier regulation, or some combination thereof. 
so with that, let's transition to final thoughts. Who wants to start us off? I, I, I will can, call I, on I can, people. <laughs> I can follow up on um, something I think Josh touched on during uh, the segment about um, the DA of San Francisco, but didn't delve into, didn't have time to delve into more, um, more deeply, but I think it's an important one. The, the criminal justice reform segment on the right, uh, right? And, and some some of the things that have been advanced by the right have been reasonable. Um, it's possible that there there were sort of overreaching uh, laws that swept in. I think, for example, the the civil uh, asset forfeiture laws um, are 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 probably are an incursion into um, civil liberties and, and need to be reexamined. But but I I objected to the entire framing uh, on the right. The, the, the framing was we have this terrible racist 1994 um, you know uh, essentially crime bill and that, that that all of these um sort of effects having a, a large percentage of americans compared to other countries in prisons those are all downstream from having this horrible racist crime bill and, and the reality is that people supported that horrible racist crime bill which it wasn't actually um the people overwhelmingly supported that legislation because they were in the midst of a huge crime spike that made it impossible for law-abiding people to basically live in cities to walk down the street um and, and there were massive social consequences from that. For example, one of the things that's always pointed to is the sentencing disparity between powder and crack cocaine. Well, the NAACP supported a high, um, high uh, sort of especially high sentencing on crack cocaine because crack cocaine was destroying black communities. So this, this is not the result of some kind of terrible racist framing. And um, it, it, it bothered me to see the right pick up and run with that framing and, and the run with the idea that actually our prisons are full of non-violent drug offenders, for example. That's, that's, that's actually just a canard. It's, it's not true. Um, and even to the extent that it is true, people who are, are uh, in for non-violent drug offenses have often pled down um, from other offenses, right? Even Alice Johnson, who, who Trump um, commuted her sentence right after 20 years, in the media it was played up as, oh, she's a non-violent drug offender and you get the impression that she you know smoked a joint in her house and and got 20 years in prison well the reality is she was trafficking 20 million dollars worth of cocaine and and cooperating with cartels in order to do that um so we have to look at why it is that we have to incarcerate such a higher percentage of our population i think this goes to a similar conversation as around uh school shootings and mass shootings you know why why do we seem to have a problem with violence and there are many deeper root causes but um, I, I just fully support Josh calling out the right for picking up a lot of the narratives um, that, that the left was running with, with regard to our, our criminal justice system, and then just kind of trying to put their own libertarian spin on it. Which is not to say that all reform is bad, and there may very well be some individual reforms that make sense. Uh, but overall, the right, this is another instance where the right just picked up the framing of the left ran, and ran with it at the speed limit. Um, and, and we're seeing the consequences of that. Yeah, the entire framing of the United States is having an over-incarceration problem, I, I think is totally mistaken here. I mean, it's true that we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than pretty much any other Western country. It is also true that for various historical, sociological reasons and whatnot, we also have a much more violent population. And we always have, by the way, going back since colonial times. I mean, th th there are lots of theories as to why that is the case. Um, it is much, much more complicated, contrary to what the left will say, than, than that we have a, a gun problem. I think gun homicides, actually, according to the FBI's 
federal statistics, according to according to uh, what, what are they called? Uniform crime statistics. I think gun homicides are like eight percent of homicides. So literally, knives and and fisticuffs combined are a much higher percentage. But I, I, I want to use my limited time here to actually make a totally different point. I'll be super quick here. Something else happened this week that I just want to quickly flag. So our friend Ali Beth Stuckey, the Blaze podcast host, found herself twi- locked locked out of Twitter for actually criticizing Fox News, believe it or not. So her tweet was, quote, I'm stunned that Fox News ran a segment celebrating a girl whose parents transitioned her into a boy when she was five because she apparently told them she was a boy before she could talk. Absolutely maddening and heartbreaking. So she was briefly suspended. I I think Twitter eventually acknowledged that this was mistaken. The reason why I think this is important because this is happening in the backdrop of Elon Musk continuing to kind of flip-flop and be very wishy-washy would be a polite way of saying that as to whether he is actually going to go through this acquisition of Twitter. So he is in this intense kind of back and forth now to figure out the percentage of users that are bots, that are not legitimate people because that will affect the valuation of the company. I have to say, when Elon first announced that he was going to do this, one of my good friends, who's not necessarily a public figure, so I won't name him, said to me, you, he said, like, from day one, you need to very carefully look out for the possibility that this is just a PR stunt, that Elon does not actually go through with this. I, I was not quite that cynical, but I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think it is very much an open question right now, but the Ali Beth Stuckey incident in particular really just, I think, shine a spotlight on, on the fact that if Twitter is going to be salvaged, something has to happen and that's something very well could take the form of Elon Musk now, but I, I, I hope he goes through with it. I really do at this point. All right. So I'll jump in really briefly. Um, yeah, I, I sort of previewed a little bit the January 6th committee unselect committee last week. And uh, I made a case on the show and then also in a piece that, you know, the committee itself is a Soviet style show trial. Um, it's obviously one-sided. The deck is stacked. It's rigged. They're, you know, it's a uh, basically, you know, this is the representation of uh, not only the contempt that our betters feel for the American people, um, but this is, you know, part and parcel of the effort to essentially try to cast the other half of the country as domestic terrorists or their aiders, abettors, and enablers, and showing how the government could use its full powers uh, to pursue them as such. So that this is a sham and a dangerous sham, uh, but it's also one that ought to be taken deathly seriously. And I think the one point that I ought to emphasize with it is that I think ultimately this is the sort of political justice system that they want to subject everyone to, or at least present as the threat if you do not get in line. So I continue to hold that view, despite the fact that, and I think it was clear that it was going to be this way from the start, no matter how stage managed this was with corporate, former corporate media executives literally stage managing the show trial, no matter the fact that the deck is stacked, that you have, it appears, the doctoring of the evidence that's being presented in it. Um, you have you know, one after the other, including you know establishment Republicans coming out and trying to, and, and basically providing porn for the left on who their political opponents are. The American people don't care about this. They're not watching this. So I I do think that is one of the sole positive takeaways from an otherwise sordid, disgusting, and disastrous affair for anything resembling a republic that we hopefully still have in this country. 
I'll just uh, finish on a thought that I uh, started to work through in an earlier segment, uh, the one on Chasa Boudin, about how during the Trump years, the left um, really went all in on the progressive experiment. Um, and San Francisco is the sort of lab of progressive governance, um, obviously failed. And, you know, in the same way they can say that true socialism has never been tried, <clears throat> they really can't make that case. Like San Francisco was fully the progressive test lab um, and experiment failed dramatically. But it's really interesting to <clears throat> it's actually kind of hard to go back uh, those to those years and remember just exactly how intensely frenzied the left was at the time to the point where the progressive mayor of Minneapolis in 2020 was being booed because he said he wouldn't fully abolish the police department or defund the police department, one of those two things. Um, and in the years leading up to that, you know, the celebrating Chesa Boudin, seeing this is the time that bold progressives are just going to take over well, there's never going to be any accountability for that. But more importantly, to reject them is to reject the logic that undergirds contemporary progressive leftism. Um, it is to reject the logic of moral relativism, um, because that is the conclusion of all of the germs of progressive thought that they're working towards in all of these different policies. They just tried them. They had the opportunity to sort of play them out to their logical conclusions. But the, if the arc of moral history is long and it bends towards justice uh, and progress is, is always good um, and always moving humanity forward by their perspective, um, this is a rebuke of the, the thing that really undergirds all of the left. And, um, you know, I think what truly undergirds the left is corporate and corporatism and cronyism uh, but on a philosophical level this is a this is huge and will they reconcile with it uh, or will they continue to do the same thing five years from now ten years from now I think the case it's it, because of social media because of technology I think we're, we're headed towards a ongoing repeats of this over and over again, um, this tug of war between uh, logic and anti-humanism. Um, so I, this is a rebuke, but whether they actually fully understand that is another question. Uh, on that note, on behalf of Josh, Inez, and Ben, I'm Emily Jashinsky. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad. <laughs>